Hi again and welcome to another edition of Louisville Bats Franchise at 40. Thanks so much for tuning into the podcast, uh, however you may be doing it, whether on SoundCloud, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, any of those ways, we certainly appreciate it. I'm Nick Curran and uh, we appreciate you as well rating reviewing subscribing whatever you can do downloading the podcast we appreciate that as well a little bit of a different episode this week obviously we have focused uh, mostly on folks who have made an impact on this franchise from within it uh, the podcast celebrating 40 years of this baseball franchise here in the city of louisville this week we venture for the first time outside of the franchise to get an outside perspective howard kelman a member of multiple halls of fame including the indiana baseball hall of fame the longtime voice of the indianapolis indians has been calling indians games uh, for nearly 50 years and uh, has been in the broadcast booth for indianapolis ever since this louisville baseball franchise began back in 1982 has seen it from the beginning has uh, seen it evolve from first a cardinals affiliate then to a brewers affiliate then to a reds affiliate where we are now uh, first from playing at cardinal stadium now to playing at louisville slugger field he has seen a little bit of it all, has seen a lot of great battles as well between the uh, Redbirds, then Bats, and Indians in the playoffs and during the regular season, and uh, has an incredible memory, as good as anyone you'll meet, and uh, a lot of great stories to recount from his time of sort of following the franchise from the outside. So a different perspective this week, and uh, this time an opposing broadcaster who has chronicled a lot of meetings between the Bats and the Indians over the years going back to 1982. Uh, the Louisville team's most common opponent since its existence has been Indianapolis, and Howard's been there every step of the way. So without further ado, Louisville Bats franchise at 40, episode 6, Howard Kelman. Thanks for checking us out. And enjoy, Howard. Great, uh, great to see you, and uh, thanks for thanks for doing this, Nick. It's great to see you, and it's always wonderful to come on the air with you. You do a great job here, and I'm honored to be with you today. It's uh, well, it's a it's a pleasure to have you. And uh, we were talking just before we started this, but you started with the Indians in 1974. You said yes, that's correct. That we won the uh, Eastern Division title that year. And we're an out away from the league championship with the Cardinals AAA team in Tulsa. Yep. Came back Hector Cruz hit a game-tying two-run homer. Tulsa won an extra innings. Tulsa won the next night one and seven. That Tulsa franchise prior to 1977 was moved to New Orleans where the New Orleans Pelicans for one year played in the Superdome. Then, then the following year, 1978, the team was moved to Springfield, Illinois, Played there for four years and then was moved to Louisville in 1982. So a lot of history between uh, what is, well, eventually kind of this incarnation of the bats and, and baseball in Louisville and Indianapolis, even going all the way back to when you first started with the Indians uh, there in the mid-70s. And uh, I think that is that is really cool that it, it, it all kind of comes full circle you talk about with that Tulsa team and then, of course, a lot of battles with Louisville. Yes, and I was so happy when Louisville got the franchise two hours away. It's yeah. a wonderful thing. And we were in the same division, 1982, Louisville's first year back after not having baseball for, I think, nine years. Yep. Uh, Louisville and Indianapolis in the Eastern Division, the American Association. And we had a three-team race going down to the wire with Louisville, Indianapolis, and the Iowa Cubs. And... 
Going into Thursday, the Indians went to Louisville for a four-game series. Louisville managed by Joe Frazier, Indianapolis by George Scherter. Louisville won the first game of the series. So now with three games left, Indianapolis and Iowa are tied for first, and Louisville's only a half game back. The Indians play the next three in Louisville. The Indians win Friday, and Iowa loses. And the Indians win Saturday to eliminate Louisville. Iowa is ahead in its game but blows a big lead to Evansville, the other team in the division. And the Indians clinch it on Saturday and then won the American Association Championship against Omaha. Wow. Uh, Really cool stuff. And, uh, you know, I want to go back to, well, sort of fast forward, go back to 1982, uh, or or I guess a little bit before 1982. What do you remember uh, sort of hearing and and, uh, thinking about when you learned that, that, and you talked a little bit about it, but when the franchise – a. Ray Smith, et cetera, was going to move that franchise from Springfield, Illinois, to Louisville, the, the AAA affiliate of the Cardinals. What, what do you remember about oh, that? Oh, I was so happy. And just it was wonderful, great for the league, great for the rivalry with Indianapolis. And instead of, instead of going to Springfield, which was three and a half hours away, here we go down to Louisville. Louisville's a great baseball city, unfortunately lost, as we said a moment ago, lost the franchise for nine years. One of the nice personal things with for me in the 1980s going to Louisville is the friendship I developed with Pee Wee Reese, who was Mr. Louisville, got that statue of him. And then in 1984, he was inducted, and rightfully so, into Baseball's Hall of Fame. And I remember interviewing his son, Mark, who was working for the Louisville Redbirds at the time during that period. Uh, that is really cool. And I, I, uh, one of the one of the neat things, as you said, uh, about Louisville and, and that connection to Pee Wee Reese, the statue, and now the number retired uh, as well with Jackie Robinson and, and Corky Miller. Uh, very cool stuff. Uh, what do you remember about walking into what had been Fairground Stadium, then became Cardinal Stadium? They obviously shared it with the uh, University of Louisville football. But what do you remember walking in about walking into that place for the first time, the first time you – we're going with the Indians to, to play Louisville when the Redbirds moved. The first thing was the short right field. Yeah. And that was the first thing. The second thing was the long haul all the way up all the stairs yes. carrying that equipment and, and all that. But that was okay. It was wonderful. The following year, 1983, Jim Fergosi became manager of the Louisville Redbirds. And to me, to me, Nick, he's the best manager I think the Louisville franchise ever has had in the 40-some-odd years that I've seen him. He was phenomenal, and Louisville finished first that year in 1983. Had a great team, and you also drew a million fans, which was absolutely sensational. And the atmosphere was wonderful. It was a pleasure to go down to Cardinal Stadium. And I knew we were in trouble one time because they, they had a bit of a theme song there. I forget the song now, but they, they had a song And one of our guys was singing the song on the bus, and I said, I think we're in trouble tonight if one of our players is singing the Louisville theme song. It was catchy, I'm sure. So so it got into the head. You've talked a lot about Jim Fergosi, and he's a guy that you got to know pretty well, right? Oh, I spent a lot of time with him in his office over the years. And the first time I met him, I said to him, and, you know, you get instant credibility if you remember something. I said, Jim, do you remember July 1st, 1962? Sunday afternoon doubleheader at Yankee Stadium. He was the shortstop for the Angels and an all-star. 
their second year of existence, the expansion Angels were battling for first place with the Yankees. He said, I sure do. I said, I was at that Sunday doubleheader. My dad took me. I was a young kid. And then we had a lot of talk about his days with the Angels. And the one thing that all I always will remember, and I do this whenever I give speeches, is tell the story that he told me. We were sitting in his office, and he said, I'll tell you a story about umpires. I said, okay. He said, I'm playing with the Angels. It's a Saturday night. We're in Boston. And after the game, I go to a bar. And I meet this woman at the bar. And we really hit it off. We're having a great conversation. And after a while, I say to her, would you like to leave with me? And she says, yes, I would. And I'd like you to take me to midnight mass. And Fergosi's, what? That's not what I had in mind. But okay, if you insist on going to midnight mass, we'll go there. They go to midnight mass. The very next day, the game begins and Jim Fergosi's batting in the first inning. The first pitch thrown to him is right over the heart of the plate. However, the umpire, Ed Hurley, said, ball one. Fergosi could not believe his good fortune. A pitch over the heart of the plate called a ball. So he turned to Ed Hurley and he said, thank you, Ed. And Ed Hurley said, no, thank you for taking my daughter to midnight mass. <laughs> I mean, that is a fantastic story. Uh, you told me that one in the booth a couple of days ago, and I, I, uh, I'm going to be honest, I, I relayed it secondhand and did not tell it as good to you, but to, to Pat Kelly, uh, our manager, and he thought it was a hoot as well. That, that is a fantastic story and uh, good stuff from Jim Fergus. And you mentioned Pat Kelly. He managed yeah. the Indianapolis Indians in 1991 and 1992, two good teams that finished second to Buffalo. It's uh, it's it's remarkable how small the world is in this game. And uh, PK, a, a former Indianapolis manager, you mentioned Jim Fergosi. You thought he was the best manager in, in the history of the Louisville franchise. What made him such a good manager in your eyes? Very smart. It helped that he played for 18 years in the big leagues. He already had managed the California Angels, they were known at the time, in the big leagues to an AL West title in 1979. Then he managed Louisville, 83, 84, 85, and early in the 86 season, the White Sox came calling, and they hired him. And then he went on to manage the Phillies. They won the NL East in 1993 and the Blue Jays. Very smart, understood people, read people, learned about pitching, former infielder. Uh, he had it going in all respects. And the following year, 1984, which was our first year working with Montreal, sure. Buck Rogers became our manager. And Jim Fergosi managing Louisville, they had a friendship because they played together with the Angels. Jim was the shortstop, Buck was the catcher. Well, we had a good enough rivalry as it was. It was even intensified with those two managers. Indianapolis had a phenomenal regular season, 91-63. and 63. Louisville was a 500 team except against Indianapolis. Of the 22 games, Louisville won the series 15 games to 7. So anyway, we had one eight-team league that year. Top four make the playoffs. Indianapolis finished first. Louisville finished in a tie with Wichita and for fourth place. So the winner of the one-game playoff makes the playoffs. The loser's out. The game was played in Louisville. Louisville won that game. 
then played Indianapolis in the first round, which Louisville won four games to two. So we were beating everybody that year but the Louisville Redbirds. How about that? Uh, really cool uh, memory of, of that. And, um, boy, that uh, that AAA team for the Cardinals had a, a lot of good squads, as you mentioned, uh, over the years. Um, do, do you remember – did you ever visit the stadium club when you were at Cardinal Stadium? Did you ever go in there? There's a lot of people that have a bunch of stories about – uh, the different folks they would see floating around in there after games. A couple of times I did, not that frequently. I know A. Ray Smith was bringing in celebrities sure. when he could. He was really big on that. Uh, we weren't there, but I know Mickey Mantle came there. I remember when A. a. Ray was in Tulsa bringing in Satchel Page. I'm sure he brought him in there. And, of course, Pee Wee Reese worked for Louisville Slugger, so he was a frequent guest there too. And so, yes, it was a special thing, that stadium club. I remember the help. Uh, that Mary Barney gave all of us, you know, uh, in the coming in the times we would come to Louisville, and she was so helpful for many, many years there. So it was always a terrific experience to come down. And uh, I got used to taking that heavy equipment up to the broadcast booth and walking. Now, I know there was an elevator way down the left field line, but I don't need the elevator. Well, absolutely. And then, then you get up there, and everyone talks about how it was swaying, and, and you got to, got to sort of uh, – deal with all that did you did you interact with a ray smith much did you get to talk to him very much a few times i didn't talk to him at length i remember talking to his grandson was a jed or his grandson worked out there too i would talk to him and see him occasionally now i the time i interacted with him a good deal was when he was in tulsa sure too when we played them as i mentioned earlier in 1974 in the league championship series at that time tulsa was in the west division of the association so i would see him here and there and, uh, you know, he, they had a carnival atmosphere there. It was really wonderful. And they drew a lot of people. And uh, I think 83 was the year they drew a million. Yeah. And it was just sensational. We did play in 1984, and I think this was his doing, uh, 154-game schedule. We'd been playing 136. But that one year we played 154. The next year it was back to 142. 154. With a lot of double headers. A lot of double headers. We I remember a stretch we had six double headers in eleven days. But wow. nobody you did it. You went out, you pitched, you played. It could be challenging on a pitching staff. It's not like now where guys so many people now in this day and age say, I hate double headers. I don't like double headers. All kinds of people in baseball. To me, baseball will always be childhood memories. And even though I've worked in it as a broadcaster my entire adult life, and I was thrilled to go to a doubleheader. Nothing like a Sunday doubleheader. So I don't dislike doubleheaders the way a lot of people do. And we have that doubleheader because of the rain out yeah. the other day. So we'll have a doubleheader in August with you. And I do prefer afternoon doubleheaders to evening doubleheaders. But nonetheless, and I remember the first doubleheader I ever went to at Yankee Stadium, August 2nd, 1961. The Yankees won a doubleheader from the Kansas City Athletics. Mickey Mantle hit a home run in the first game. And I remember I was so excited going to my mother and saying, Dad's taking me to a doubleheader. And she said, the only reason he's doing that, he's getting a good deal to see two games for the price of one. <laughs> well, that, that'll work. Uh, 1984, those doubleheaders, were those seven-inning games or yes. were those nine-inning yes. games? Yes, there All was right. talk there were going to be nine innings for a while, but they, they were seven. Doubleheaders always have been seven innings. Since I got here in the mid-70s, uh, 
Split doubleheaders, and we've had maybe four or five of them over the years. They're nine innings. Sure. They were. But it changed. I think in the 60s, you would have a Sunday afternoon doubleheader in the minor leagues. The first game would be nine, second game seven. A twi-night doubleheader, first game seven, second game nine. But by the time I got there in the mid-70s, it was all seven-inning doubleheaders. Which uh, makes it certainly a little bit easier to deal with well the big leagues were playing split double headers of seven innings last year the they year were. before and i'm like what's going on here we always play nine when we play split double that's headers. right that's right uh, it was very very weird to see but but they're back they're back to the nines now so so all set there with all with a whole bunch of double headers the reds as we record this playing one today against the pirates as a matter of fact at a at great american ballpark a and split double header always remember the words of manager casey stengel who managed the Yankees to 10 pennants in 12 years and the Mer- and the Mets when they were really bad. We're going to take them one at a time unless we're playing a doubleheader. There you go. That is that is perfect. Uh, let folks know, you, you mentioned a little bit of the of the Indians' affiliation uh, and, and uh, catching on with the, with the Expos, as you mentioned, there uh, in the 80s. What came after that? Well, first, to just give you a little background, we yes. were at the Reds from 1968 to 83. Right. And we severed our ties with the Reds, and it came over the designated hitter. Going back to 1975 and then in 1978, 79, 80, we were forced to bat the pitcher while the opposition was batting, was using a DH. So there was no uniform rule. Right. Well, it was a, a rule you could use the DH. That, that was in place. The DH was in place. But Cincinnati said, no, you're batting the pitcher. And you're handicapped that way. It's like playing seven or eight against nine. You're batting the pitcher. The opposition's using a DH. And Max Schumacher, the Indians' president and GM, tried to get the Reds to change their mind. They did for us in the playoffs in 1982. But finally, in 1983, Max felt uh, that he had to make a change because of that, the way it was hampering. And then, ironically... He had a verbal agreement. Things were different then than they are now. Then you could have an agreement in the middle of a season. So Max decided he was going to Montreal the next year. Dick Wagner, who was the GM, got fired right during the time the agreement was verbal. Bob Housen came in as returning out of retirement to become the Reds GM again. He immediately called Max and said, you can have the DH. We want to keep the working relationship, and Max said, I gave my word to the Expos that we have a new uh, agreement with them. So we started working with Montreal in 1984, worked with them through 1992, five championships in those nine years. The one constant except for one of those years was Razor Shines, who's the most popular player in the history of the franchise. And then 1993, we worked with the Reds again, from 93 to 99, and this time it was the Reds who severed their ties with us and began working with Louisville. And then... Well, we the- were Milwaukee then yep. for five years, won the championship the first year, 2000, Governor's Cup. That's the last championship the Indianapolis Indians have won. We won all of them, so many of them in the 1980s. We won one in 1994, beating Louisville in the first round. And so then it was Montreal for five years, and since 2005 it's been Pittsburgh. There you have it. Uh, and you, you mentioned before we started as well, we touched on a few of the, 
the meetings in the 80s right after the franchise had moved to Louisville between Indianapolis and, and Louisville, the, the AAA of the, of the Cardinals. And then you mentioned also uh, some, some meetings in the 90s as well and some big games. Played against Louisville in the playoffs, and sometimes we had a, an eight-team league back then as opposed to divisions. Indianapolis and Louisville played in the playoffs in 1984, and that was really special because at that time, Nick, Major League Baseball was on strike. So here's Indianapolis, Cincinnati's AAA team, Louisville, St. Louis AAA team. We had incredible media coverage. Game one was at Cardinal Stadium. We had incredible media coverage. I remember Earl Lawson, who was the beat writer for the Reds, coming over, and, and so many other writers and broadcasters did. Well, Indianapolis swept that three game, that best of five, swept it in three, then beat Nashville to win the league championship. The following year, the Indians again finished first, played Louisville again in the playoffs, and Louisville swept that series. And Louisville went on, beat Buffalo to win the championship. So those were two years where we played each other back-to-back in the uh, postseason. Great uh, great stuff. And you talked about uh, the strike year of 94 and, and a little bit of extra attention on that, which is, which is really interesting. Um, well, want to – take you back to this too uh he he is back in the louisville broadcast booth this year what do you remember about if anything uh kind of meeting jim kelch he joined the team in 1989 became the broadcaster and uh what do you remember about about meeting him back back in the late 80s i do remember it was 1989 and we became friends and always enjoyed speaking with jim and was delighted about his success when he got the reg job and uh you know, we talked over the years, and uh, I'm glad to see him doing some work with with the Louisville Bats now. And uh, Jim did some Cardinal games. He was in yeah. the right place there. He did some Cardinal games when St. Louis was the parent team and then did some Red games initially, still broadcasting for Louisville when Cincinnati was the parent team. So I'm delighted about all that Jim has achieved over the years. And I also have to ask you about uh... – about Matt Andrews as well, who followed Jim in the uh, in the Bats broadcast booth, and uh, always a great relationship between you two. Yeah, he was really intense. I mean, when things weren't going well, he, he you know, Jim was a little more like I am. I think you know, you take each day as it comes. But Matt was like, if something went wrong, I've got to watch this and this and this. You know, when the when you we all have some bad ball clubs. So Matt was really intense, but a very nice guy, a guy with a wonderful heart and delighted about the success he's had in Columbus, Ohio, which I believe is his hometown. Yeah, right right in there, and uh, Ohio State uh, alum, and, and uh, a great spot there in Columbus with the Buckeyes. Uh, now, fast-forwarding, and you touched on it a little bit, to, to 2000. Uh, a lot of stuff happening there. Uh, the Reds, as you mentioned, left Indianapolis – to, to, to come to Louisville, which is where they've been since as the, as, uh, the AAA affiliate, uh, well, the, the Bats have been since 2000, the AAA affiliate of the Reds. What do you remember about, about all that happening? Uh, the Reds deciding to, to pull out of here and, and go with Louisville, who had been a Brewers affiliate for a couple of years, and then, uh, then end up getting the Reds there going into that 2000 season. Well, as I mentioned, in 1983, we severed our ties with the Reds, as you yeah. mentioned Louisville severed their ties with us, and we were really disappointed. And that hurt, and uh, we had an opportunity to extend the agreement. Jim Bowden came to Indianapolis, and we did not take advantage of that opportunity right before the season. 
And then Jim Bowden decided that he would go with Louisville. Louisville was getting a new ballpark, so it was a win-win for Louisville. And it was tough. It was tough for the Indianapolis franchise. The Milwaukee people were nice people. We did win the championship the first year. But we certainly enjoyed working with the Reds those years. Uh, no doubt. And I know it was a big, uh, a big change. Um, and you, you talked about it also. 2000 was a big year in, in Louisville franchise history, not only because of the Reds, but because that's the year Louisville Slugger Field opened, the, the brand-new ballpark downtown, which has been uh, open now for 22 years. Uh, first impressions when you got to go there for that first time in 2000? There was an elevator. <laughs> that was the first thing. <laughs> I took the elevator up. Oh, beautiful ballpark. I just think it's wonderful. And I was so happy and uh, that you got a new ballpark. And you look at our division, Indianapolis 1996, Louisville 2000, Toledo 2002, and Columbus 2009. Now, that no longer is our division. We're still in it, but there are 10 teams yeah. in the division now. But it was great. Just a great ballpark. Love going to Slugger Field. And I also enjoyed going to the Louisville Slugger Museum, too. Yeah, great proximity to that. Do, do you feel like Victory Field, and that's where we're recording this right now, is where we're here in the visiting booth at, at Victory Field. Do you feel like this place was sort of the catalyst for for a Louisville Slugger Field, for a fifth third field in Toledo, for a Huntington Park in Columbus? They'd all been uh, ballparks that weren't downtown, kind of on the outskirts, and, and uh, it seemed to go really well here, opening in the middle of the 96 season. What, do, you, do you feel like this was sort of a catalyst for all those other ones in the division? Well, it may very well have been, and other new ballparks around the league. Durham with a beautiful yeah. ballpark, and uh, Charlotte with a beautiful ballpark, but that was much later. So I, that may be the case. I do know that when we were in the process of you know, trying to get the new ballpark, Max Schumacher went to Des Moines in 1992. Des Moines redid its whole ballpark. HOK was the architect, and we used HOK as well to build our ballpark. So that's a good point, Nick, and it may very well have been. I'm glad that they did not put the clubhouses uh, in, in left field. As that's they the are way it wasn't. Way. Well, yeah. before that, though, when I first started in the mid-'70s, the clubhouses were not in left field. They were adjacent to the dugouts, and, I mean, they needed new clubhouses. You yeah. couldn't – if you were – I was six feet back then. I've lost a couple inches. But if, if you were fairly tall, you couldn't stand up straight in the clubhouse. It was – I mean, it was just – everybody was bunched in there like sardines. And so the, the conditions were not good, uh, and they improved over the years greatly. And these beautiful ballparks we just talked about a moment ago – have added so much to minor league baseball's appeal. They have, and uh, I, I definitely feel like this place uh, sort of helped set that trend. And, and uh, well, the IL West for years, people called it the best division in, in minor league baseball in terms of the travel and the different ballparks you got to go to. Uh, Want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, another manager who's big in, I, I think, both Indianapolis baseball and Louisville baseball and with that Reds affiliation change is Dave Miley, uh, someone you know very well. And, and th there have been a lot of great stories about and, and uh, hoping to have him as a guest on this podcast at some point. I don't think it'll be complete without having him as a guest, and we'll, we'll hopefully do that in the future. But do you have any good... You have any good Dave Miley stories that come to mind? Well, I probably kidded around more with him than any other manager we ever had here. And he used a line once when we had two weeks left in the season. He looked at me and said, in two weeks we get to pick our own friends. Yeah. And I would come back with him. He probably used that line with you guys too. But 
uh, and Dave managed the Indianapolis Indians from 1996 to 99. And the one way we kidded around a great deal and people were wondering what was happening, when he was coaching third base, which he did most of the time, he was here when he a ground ball was hit to him, a foul ball on the ground. If he'd field it, I'd get up and clap for him and applaud. If he didn't, I'd wave a handkerchief or a towel at him. And then when he'd field a ground ball, he'd bow and all that. He'd look up here, you know, and then I'd position and move him a little to the left. And I said, that's good. Move a little to the right. So we had a lot of fun in that regard. That's uh, that's pretty awesome. Uh, of course, when the Reds moved out of here, he came with the Reds to Louisville. Um how how was that uh, to to see him on the other side th- those those first couple of years? Well, I said, Dave, I didn't like you before. Now I don't like you anyway. So no, but we had a lot of fun, and then he had the success to become the Cincinnati Reds manager. You know, he was loyal to them, and then he managed the Yankees AAA team one year in Columbus, and then through 2015 in Scranton. But he's unfortunately didn't get another uh, professional baseball job after he lost the Scranton job. Uh, there was a, a reunion of the 2001 Governor's Cup title team for uh, the, the Riverbats last year, and he was in town uh, for that, and it was really cool. I'm uh, wondering if he's still coaching high school baseball. He got a job as a high school baseball yeah. coach. I'm near Cincinnati, I think in southern Indiana, or near Louis. I think it's closer to Cincinnati, and yeah, I hadn't in, heard about that. In Indiana, and I don't know that if I don't know if he's still there or not. I don't think we. He came on the air, and I don't think I, I asked him about that, but but was doing well with with uh, Pooh's wife there, and it was uh, it was uh, really cool to to really get a chance to talk to him a little bit, and uh, some great memories shared about that 2001 team uh, with the Riverbats that that uh, unfortunately had the, the championship series against Scranton, as a matter of fact, come to an end because of September 11th, and finally got a chance to sort of celebrate that team and it was neat that he was able to get back to to Louisville Slugger Field all those years later. I think Mark Bombard may have been managing the Scranton team at that time and he managed Indianapolis right before he was Dave Miley's predecessor 1993 to five two first place finishes championship. Bombard was an outstanding manager. Uh, That's awesome. Uh, Jumping around a little bit you mentioned PK earlier Pat Kelly who is now uh, the the bats manager mentioned his time in the early '90s with Indianapolis. What do you remember about getting a chance to to work with him a little bit? Uh, I like him a great deal. And first off, and he has a good temperament too. Yeah, upbeat, pleasant. Every day is a do Every day is a new day. Which Mark Bombard was like that too. I think Dave Miley got like that after a while. We blew a ten game lead to Louisville in 1998, and uh, I think after that, Dave realized it wasn't his divine right to win every night. And that because he'd had a lot of success managing in the minor leagues, uh, you can't win. You can, there's only so much you can do. But the circumstances first, when it comes to Pat Kelly, in 1991, Pat was managing in A ball for the Montreal Expos at Parent Team. Jerry Manuel was the Indianapolis Indians manager. Buck Rogers was the Montreal Expos manager. Tom Runnels, their third base coach. Well, I think it was in early June, the Expos fired Buck Rogers, made Tom Runnels the manager, called up Jerry Manuel from Indianapolis to be the third base coach, and moved Pat Kelly from A-Ball to become the Indianapolis Indians manager. And uh, liked him a great deal, uh, and really good guy, nice person, good guy, and a former catcher too, and former catchers are special because of the, uh, Miley may not have been, no, but former catchers are special. <laughs> because of the uh, the impact they have on a game. So 
Uh, the two years Pat managed Indianapolis, we had very good teams, were in contention, finished second each year to some terrific Buffalo Bisons teams. Uh, great stuff, and I know he looks back fondly on his time here as well, having talked to him a little bit about that. It's, he's been just about everywhere, it seems like, uh, as a manager over the years. Uh, been with the Reds a long time. Now he now. has, yeah, has been, and, and just about every level of the Red system, including a couple of stints in the big leagues, most recently as the uh, the the interim bench coach in 2018, started here for 10 games and then changes up there, and he was Jim Riggleman's bench coach. He also was the bench coach for Pete McCannon. Yep. That's going back a while. And, and by the way, Pete McCann was one of the funniest people I ever met in baseball. And Pat and Pete were good friends. They met in the minor leagues. Uh, yeah, PK very well respected with, uh, within the Reds organization and, and around the game. There's no doubt about it. He's got uh, former players everywhere, it, it seems. Uh, jumping off of Louisville for a second, but having been a, a Reds affiliate, there's some guys that, that you've gotten to see play, and, and one of them uh, who – uh, hangs on a suite here, walk past every day coming into the ballpark is Eric Davis. Uh, we see him, uh, saw him last week. He made the trip to Columbus as in his uh, in his role as as a, a special assistant in the Reds organization, roving around and, and getting a chance to check out all the different teams. But I know you've you've had a pretty uh, special relationship with Ed over the years. Yeah, terrific. And he played for us. Here's what happened. He joined us in August of 1983, so we had three to four weeks left of the season. And he promoted from double A. It might have been Waterbury. might have been the Reds double A team at the time. And, you know, we knew he was a prospect. It's not like today, Nick, where you know about everybody and you constantly hear. But we had heard he was a prospect and a chance to be a really good player. So he joins us on a Friday night. The Indians are playing the Iowa Cubs, who are managed by Jim Napier. And Iowa wins the game, and Eric struck out four times. All right, his first game, it can happen. So Jim Napier says to me the next day, he says, they say this kid Eric Davis can run. So far, we haven't found that out. You know, in other words, you strike out four times, you can't. And I thought that was quite a shot. I didn't say anything to anybody. I did write about it 20 years later when I wrote a book. But I didn't say anything to anybody about that. I could have caused quite a storm. Well, the next night, the second night that night that, that uh, Jim Napier said that Eric Davis had two or three hits, two or three hits the next day, homers, triples. You check his numbers from 1983 with the Indianapolis Indians that three- or four-week period. He was phenomenal. He never stopped hitting, never stopped stealing bases, doing everything. And he would have been, in the big leagues, the first 40-40 guy. I think it was 1987, but he hurt himself at Wrigley Field. And I've always stayed in touch with him. I think he's a great guy. I think he's very smart, too, and brings a lot to the table and can have a terrific influence and has had on young ball players. He has and uh, does a tremendous job within the Reds organization of working with a lot of young guys and definitely has their, their ears, and rightfully so. So when I wrote the book, I give it was in 2010, 61 Humorous and Inspiring Lessons I Learned from Baseball. I give Eric a copy of the book, and I said, I want to tell you a little story. And I told him what happened, what Jim Napier said. And he's like, again, it's what, 27 years later, but he's still like, wow, he said that? I said yes, and I wrote about it, and he's looking at the chapter in the book. So uh, terrific guy, and it's wonderful that he still works for the Reds. It, uh, it is, and it's great that, that we get to see him every now and again. Howard, this has been great. Uh, appreciate you taking some time. Uh, you mentioned your book. 
how how can folks if they want to check it out? I know it's out there still. Yeah, and it's, all the stories are generic, even though I wrote it a while ago. They can go to my website, howardkelman.com, and get order a copy of it. Uh, it's an honor being on with you, Nick. I appreciate the great work that you do and the kind of person you are very much. Well, it's been uh, great getting to know you on on uh, my part of it over the last almost 10 years now, which is kind of crazy, but um, uh, a pleasure to have you. I think you were the perfect person to, to talk to from outside the Louisville organization. You've literally seen this uh, franchise from the beginning in 1982 and, and how it's come and, and everything that's happened along the way. So really need to get a chance to, to get your input on it. Thank you. And also a special hello to Greg Galliette, whom I've known since I think 1984 and does a wonderful job there too. He is the, the president and, uh, well, he was guest number one on the podcast, of course, and uh, he he the longest tenured within the organization, and uh, you're the perfect person from outside it. Howard, appreciate it. Uh, look forward to uh, to many more games here this year and, uh, and, and many more in the future. Thank you so much, Nick. All right, that was Howard Kelman, the longtime voice of the Indianapolis Indians. Just great stuff. So many great memories, especially about Jim Fergosi. Uh, former Redbirds manager and and about so many great battles between the division rivals over the years. Howard has uh, an amazing memory, has seen so much and remembers basically each and everything. So it is uh, pretty remarkable what he's able to recount and and just great stuff from him. A lot of great memories about uh, his first time seeing Cardinal Stadium, seeing Louisville Slugger Field, uh, and of course, memories about the Reds changing from Indianapolis to Louisville and sort of getting the Indians perspective during that time. Big thanks to Howard for joining us this week on the podcast. Thank you for checking us out again, whether you're tuned in, downloaded us, found us, however you're listening via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or, uh, or Google podcasts. We appreciate it. Rate, review, subscribe, download all that stuff. Very much appreciate that as well. Fun episode this week. We will be back next time, next week, with another great episode, working on some cool things. Uh, hopefully they come through, and uh, well, we'll have some exciting news to share on next week's podcast. Thanks so much for being with us. It is Louisville Bats, Franchise at 40. I'm Nick Curran. We will talk to you next time. Hey,